Great. Um, it's good to see you all. And um, if you weren't here last week and you're just sort of back, Happy New Year, students. Good to see you back, those who are amongst us. Um, last week, Jenny um, kind of cracked off this new series that we're going to be beginning between kind of really now and Easter. Uh, and she spoke about being intentional, intentionality. Um, and um, some people here are kind of get really focused and are really good at that sort of thing. Other of us are a bit more floaty and kind of flitty. And, but there's something really good about being intentional. Um, and just before I preach, I want to introduce you to a, a new member of our parish team. Uh, many of you will be aware that um, Mary uh, has been parish administrator for quite some time um, and has been working brilliantly across the parish, organizing, well, basically all of us brilliantly, um, uh, has kind of ste- stepping into a new role, which is exciting, um, within the parish, uh, and stepping back from the administration. And it's my joy and delight to let you know that Sam Forrester um, is stepping into that w- wonderful role. <laughs> Sam, why don't you come out the front a sec? Do you want to bring, come out the front and bring Daniel with you? Um, many of you will, will know Sam, part of the church family here with James and Caleb and uh, Daniel, new lovely little Daniel. Daniel is going to help um, with all our web work here. Uh, He's going to be involved in quite a lot of the multimedia production stuff. So we're great to have him on the team as well. Um, And um, it's just great to have Sam. Sam's kind of volunteered and been around um, doing stuff in the office for a while. uh, But she's kind of getting getting to grips with managing that and what it's going to be like with family and that. So it's a kind of bit of transition. Mary's helping in that brilliantly. So do be praying for um, Sam through this season and um, really grateful for Mary for all the help that she's continuing to sort of support and nurture and encourage and direct and work with Sam. So thanks to Mary for all the amazing stuff that she's done. Good news is Mary's going to be involved in the parish in other ways, um, kind of in new training and reading, all that sort of stuff, but we'll talk more about that another time. But I just want to pray for, um, for Sam as she just steps into this new role. Father, I want to thank you for Sam. Thank you for James and um, Daniel and Caleb last week being able to dedicate uh, Daniel. And Father, we pray for Sam as she's in this new role. Lord, that you would bless her and anoint her as she serves the parish here, as she works to help the uh, parish administration, the church administration, your kingdom administration in this place. We want to pray for your blessing on her. Thank you for the skills, for the competences, for the uh, enthusiasm and life that she brings. And Lord, may this be a new step, a new stage in her and the, the, the ministry of the family together in this parish and beyond. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. It was great at St. Tom's um, to see these guys were there this morning and for, uh, to, to announce that at St. Tom's as well, and that was really, really well received. So we're looking at intentional discipleship, and that can, if I'm honest, sound a little bit sweaty. It can sound a bit like, a bit like hard work. Right, I'm going to be an intentional disciple, um, which is kind of missing the whole point. Intentionality is really about saying... Lord, here I am. I want to yield to you. I want to truly go for you as best I can. A bit like Bex was saying. And for that, we really need God's help. But it does, in a weird sort of way, begin with us saying, yeah, Lord, here I am. I want to honor you. I want to serve you. If you were at Pastor on Wednesday, um, Jenny was there and she was kind of explaining a bit about this journey. She talked um, about a passage that we all know and love really, really dearly from John 15, where God is described as the gardener. You'll know the passage. And Jesus as the vine, where we draw our spirituality, where we draw our our sustenance, if you like, by being branches that are fully connected, healthfully, consistently connected into into him, into Jesus. 
You know the verse. I am the vine, says Jesus, the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. And so we're using this passage as a kind of framework as we look at intentional discipleship, which really is about walking with God. It's about journeying with God. It's about a pilgrimage where we grow deeper with one another and we grow deeper in love with him. And we're using this kind of framework, this passage, to fit in with the readings that we're using. We're using the lectionary readings, which take us right the way through the Bible. Um, And kind of in three sections, three intentional sections for discipleship. And we're splitting them into abiding bearing, pruning, which really is the ABP of intentional discipleship in many ways. And tonight, and we're going to be repeating this, but looking at different areas of discipleship. So we're going to be looking at areas like um, uh, our money, our giving. How do we give? How do we pray? What about fasting? What about um, our prayer life? What about worship? We're going to look at all different areas of our walk and journey with Jesus. What does it look like? Last term we looked at Jesus who, 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 do, who do you say I am, says Jesus? And we looked at Jesus with fresh eyes. And having encountered Jesus and having had a fresh revelation of him in all his glory, the question is, so what? We've seen Jesus for who he is. Now the call is to follow this Jesus and to become more like him. So what we're trying to do is see, well, what does that look like? What does that look like with our money, with our time, with our gifts, with spiritual gifts, with our whole lives? And so that's what we're doing. And we're going to do it in, a, in this rolling cycle. So tonight, the first one is abiding. And tonight, where we're starting with abiding, which is a great place to be, abiding is kind of dwelling, resting, resting in God, with the question about knowing who you are. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? I don't know if you've ever been to um, a fairground. You know, uh, those, or those attractions where they have the kind of fendi mirrors that distort an image of yourself. And they're kind of fun, aren't they? But they're kind of also slightly weird and slightly disturbing, slightly worrying. And you kind of look at them and you think, maybe I actually do look like that. Is that actually just a straight mirror? Or is that one that's distorting my image? What what do I really look like? Or have you seen, perhaps if you've ever been on holiday, sometimes at the seaside or on resorts, you see the cartoonists that you can pay them and they'll do a sketch of you which I think you have to be really seriously brave to do because, of course, what they do is they pick up on one of your features and then kind of magnify it, as all kind of cartoonists do, which is really, really quite worrying. You know, so they'd go for your, maybe my receding hairline or big nose, or they go for your double chin, and then they massively exaggerate it, which is kind of funny to everyone else, but probably for yourself you're thinking, man, do I really look like that? So Mark, with his moustache, it will be effervescent, I I would imagine, if I was a cartoonist. You know, sometimes I think the truth is that there's something within most of us that actually is really scared about being called out, being recognized, those inward things that maybe we're not so happy about or content about, that we're not quite sure if others see them. When we look in a mirror, a kind of mirror about ourselves, we see those faults, we see those weaknesses, We see those traits. Maybe we see physical things we don't like. And we're not sure whether other people see them, but we suspect they probably do. And what we're really terrified about is is someone calling out those things within us, naming them, those things that we try and keep hidden. We wear a mask, don't we? If I asked you to make a mask, if I gave you a piece of paper and asked you to make a mask of, 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 of how you think other people might see you or how you would like to be seen 
on one side of the mask, and then on the inside of the mask, you did a picture of what you think you really look like. Maybe you could use words, words on the outside. You might want to write words of how you would like others to see you, but on the inside of the mask, you could write words about how you really feel about yourself. I suspect that for many people, they would be two very different pictures. How we'd love to be seen, but how we really feel about ourselves. And we wear masks in order to make ourselves more accessible or, or, or more pleasant to other people. But actually, what we feel about ourselves is often a real, real struggle. And we're worried about being found out for who we really, really are. And sometimes really silly, insignificant insecurities or vulnerabilities or weaknesses can creep up on them at the most ridiculous times when we're not expecting it. Um, seemingly innocuous moments, and maybe they don't really matter, but they can be quite striking. So, for example, just before um, Christmas, I went to a skid pan day up at Castle Coombe Racetrack. Um, I went with my very lovely daughter. It was her, her 18th birthday present, and I went with um, Ellie, and I went with her mum, and we went with some other people as well. And there were loads of other people there. And originally I wasn't going to go, but, but sadly someone who was going to go was poorly, um, and they couldn't go, and so they sort of said, oh, well, why don't you go instead? And I kind of thought, well, <laughs> I'm actually a very good driver. Um, uh, thank you, Peter. I do like you. Um, I, I thought, I, I probably know most of what there is to know about skid pan racing, you know, because I used to race go-karts when I was young, and I was quite a good racer, and, you know, I raced carts quite a bit, so... Um, Oh, okay, I'll come as well. So I, I went for this day. Now, I thought to myself, this will be really fun. I'll learn some skills. I'll probably be quite good, but that'll be good. I'll, I'll, I'll be very humble, was the thought I had. So we went on this day, and actually, you know what? It was absolutely brilliant. If you ever get a chance to do it, they, they teach you how to <laughs> sort of um, avoid crashes, basically. And you drive a rear-wheel drive car and a front-wheel drive car, and you learn different techniques to, uh, to compensate for skids, and they make you go into skids, and it's lots of fun this, on this really, really terrifying track. And we spent hours learning techniques and throwing these cars around, and Ellie was really good, and Sarah, Sarah was really good, and the others were good, and you know, I, I was good. Um, but I learned some more skills, and I thought, this is, this is useful. This is actually really, really quite good, and I learned some things that I really, really didn't know. Now, at the end of the day, after the three hours, for a bit of fun, time was running out. So we're going to do a timed lap now, and we're going to put you in the BMW, which is rear-wheel drive, which kind of literally, and we're going to, you're going to do this track, this race track, where you go up and you throw the car around in a 180, and then you slide around these cones, you spin it around, you do a complete J-turn, spin it around, and then reverse back into the garage, and we're going to time you. You know, not for any really significant thing, but just as a bit of fun to finish up the day, and the kind of the winner will get a trophy. And I thought, oh, well, that'll be quite a fun thing to do, won't it? And you can't help but look around at your competition at that moment and go, yeah, 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 mm, yeah, quite good. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, should be good. So I kind of thought, well, this will be fun, and, and I, I'll just do my best. But I'll, and everyone had a go, and I was right at the end virtually, and everyone had a go, and everyone had a go, and everyone did pretty well. And some people, some people were really bad, Ellie, weren't they? Some were terrible. Ellie was very good, and others were very good, and we had lots of fun. It came to me, and... No matter how much you, decide, you, you say to yourself, this, 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 you don't, Tim, you don't have to be competitive about this, this little voice inside goes, yeah, right, you want to win. And so I kind of got in the car, and, I, and I, I went for it, and I really went for it, and I think, right, control, and I, some, applying some of the things I'd learned. And actually, I was going really, really quickly, 
and got right to the end where you do this great spin round and throw the back of the car around in a complete 180 and then reverse. And as I went right the way around perfectly in exactly the right spot, I stalled the engine. I was like, oh, started the engine. And I only lost probably, you know, a few milliseconds and then reversed back, parts in the garage, got out. And they were like, oh, that's good. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's all right. So we finished. Time had really run out. And we rushed back to the cabin. The guy was there with his clipboard and his stopwatch. And he'd been writing all these times down. We got back to, the, back to the area where we sat. And he started reading out the scores in reverse order. Um, and he, he basically, he, 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 he named the first place. Wasn't me. And the second place. That wasn't me. And the third place. That, wait a minute. That wasn't me either. And the fourth place. Hang on a minute. I was sixth. And I sat there thinking, oh, no, this is really, really awful. Now, God, how do I react to this? I'm actually really, really upset about this. I thought I was better than that. But, but I have to be kind of very magnanimous to the people who beat me, which was pretty much everybody. And um, I kind of thought, you know, gr- grudgingly, I sat there and thought, well, so you, you can't tell, can you? Some people seem slow, and it was me that was really, really slow. And so they gave out the prizes for these people, and everyone clapped, and they got their congratulations, and... And then we, we got up to leave. And as we were getting up to leave, people were walking back up the path of the car. And Ellie went over to the timesheet where the bloke had written the times down. And she said, oh, no, look, look, Dad. No, look, you, you, you were the second fastest by only like a tenth of a second. You missed out on it. And I was like, um, excuse me, every, uh, everybody. Um, I, I need to tell you, I wasn't sixth. Um, uh, I, I actually nearly won. And I, I know... Now, I didn't say that. All of that happened in my head because I'm a man, and that's where we process all those things. And I suddenly thought as I went home, it's really interesting, isn't it, that in a moment, you can actually suddenly feel all these feelings and and desperately try and claw it all back in, and what doesn't really seem important to you actually does become really, really important to me. My identity as king of the track had been challenged And it turns out all the results were wrong. Actually, I was pretty good. But what it really revealed was my own heart, perhaps my insecurities, or or how I can get my identity from success, or from how other people perceive me. I didn't want to be perceived as someone that wasn't very fast in a car. I wanted to be perceived as someone who was very, very good. It's complete nonsense, isn't it? Now, of course, it's not really that big a deal to me, but it's amazing the little things that can go on in your mind. Where do I get my identity from? Where do I get my sense of worth from? Where do I get my sense of value from? Well, those are the challenges that are going to face us all the time. And it highlights how easily, in a moment, we can have this little crisis over seemingly nothing. Now, that's just a silly thing. But what about when the big things really, really hit us? Because this sort of thing reveals in our own hearts how and where we can seek our identity. And it can be more important than perhaps who we are in Christ. So where can, where can we be tempted to find our identity? Well, maybe you're a student here that can never seem to keep up with the other fast, witty, successful students around you. Or maybe, like many guys I've known, you become blinded professionally by the ladder of success at work and, and a need to do better, a need to press on up, often at the expense of life and family. Or maybe you're crippled because you don't have a job and you feel really worthless, or the job you're in, there's no fulfillment, there's no sense of value in it, and you just feel really rubbish about yourself because you don't get any value from your work. Or maybe 
I've known some mums who used to find real fulfillment, understandably, and worth in the job that they did. But now they're tirelessly working at home with kids with, who are pretty much un, unappreciative much of the time and don't, there's not a lot to show for it, seemingly. And in those moments, we begin to lose a sense of who we are and what we're about. Now, it's not about belittling those feelings, because those feelings are real, and it's good to talk about them and recognize them. But that's not how our Father in heaven sees us, and it's not the measure by which he looks at us. In Judges 6, there's um, a a fantastic story. Many of you will know it. It's a real classic. It's one of my favorite stories. I'm just going to read a bit to you from it. While his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord's with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? But Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And so it goes on. You perhaps know the story. So here's this bloke. There's this guy, Gideon. And fear is his primary problem. Fear and issues of self-worth, I would suggest. And if any of you know my story from my past, fear was a massive, massive thing in my past too. So here he is. Here's Gideon. Terrible fear of the the Midianite, the enemy. And he's threshing out wheat, hidden, actually, in a wine press, hidden in a barrel, because he doesn't want to be seen. He's scared. And the angel comes to him and says, you mighty man of valor. I mean, what would you think? You'd be saying, you're having a laugh. Me? You'd look over your shoulder. It's one of those moments when you're in a meeting. And it's always in school. And someone puts their hand up to answer. And you point at them. Every child I've ever pointed at to give me an answer always looks behind them. Because they assume you mean the man, the person behind them. Why is that? What is it about us that think when someone says, yes, you, our first thing to think is to go, he must mean someone else. I think it's like that with the angel. When the angel says to him, mighty man of valor, Gideon thinks, well, I know I'm the only one in this barrel, but you can't mean me. He has no sense of that he could mean him. I'm Gideon. I'm the scaredy, scaredy, scaredy cat here. That's not who I am. But the Lord sees Gideon, not through Gideon's eyes, but through his own eyes, through his own destiny, through his own purpose, and through his own sovereign purpose and plan and will. And that's what I want us to understand tonight, because that's the foundation of identity that we find within the Bible. Who you are is about who God thinks you are. And we'll only really get it if we abide, if we soak if we hang out in places where we're going to receive and be saturated by that truth. Because too many other things will press in to try and rob it from you. Too many other things will try and rob about who you truly, truly are. Um, Quick illustration. Can I borrow some students? I need about six students. I'm not going to do anything horrible to you. So can I grab that line? One, two, three, four, five. And Eleanor, let's get you six. (laughs) Can you guys come out? There you go. Me? Uh, none of you look behind you, which is amazing. Can you just come and stand on the line up front? So, Kieran, if you can stand at the back. Alan, why don't you come and stand on the front here? So I'll have you, you're the last person I picked. So I need you to stand in a line with your facing towards Eleanor. Eleanor, if you face everyone like that. Nice line. And you need to be close enough 
can put your hands squarely on the person's shoulders in front of you. Okay, reach out. It's okay. And try and get your arms nice and straight. Lock them. Beautiful. Um, in life, we kind of breeze through life thinking that everything's going to be fine, doing our best. And as Christians, we're kind of always thinking, hoping that we're protected from the pressures and challenges of the world. Okay, are your arms all nice locked hard? Nice small in the small of the back of the person in front of you. Right on the shoulders there. Beautiful. Okay, perfect. Keep your arms nice and locked hard. Because in life, what often happens is there's all sorts of pressures. Oh, I don't know, it's fallen off the end. Now, you're completely oblivious to what's happening around you, but in that moment, there's a bit of a buffet that comes. And we struggle. Now, you're standing at the front. You're not doing anything, right? You're just literally standing there. And there's nothing more disconcerting than someone pushing you in the back, <laughs> when, least of all when you're not expecting it. And, and when that happens, Peter, can you come here now? Now, Ellen, if you put your hands out in front of you, okay? And Peter, just push against her hands. Hard. Look, she didn't move at all. Feet were so... Thank you. Give these guys a round of applause. I would suggest in life that there are times when we're just standing there and before we know it, we find ourselves falling. We think, where did that come from? The world, the flesh and the devil is out to push, is out to push you, is out to kind of conform you, to shape you, to mold you, to get you to move, to get you to move into places that perhaps you didn't want to go into. There is a constant pressure at our backs, a constant pressure to conform, a constant pressure to, to, to look in mirrors that distort an image of who we are so that we don't see ourselves as God sees us, but perhaps we see ourselves as others. There's a pressure to conform to a, the perfect image, a pressure to conform to how we live and to be the, a, a certain person that will say the certain thing. The world, the flesh and the devil constantly seeking to shape and move you, to push you about. And however steady we try and hold ourselves on our own, we'll end up falling forward. And it's usually at times when we're tired or we're a bit vulnerable or weak or we're on our own. What you need is a force that's equal pushing you back. Now, Peter can't always be there for you. (laughs) But, of course, we know that God the Father can. What's holding you up? What's holding you steady through the season of life you're in? We're all in different phases of life here. Some of you are students, some of you are working, some of you are kind of at the other end of life, retirement, although most of the people I know who are at retirement age seem more busy than they ever were beforehand. Life is constantly busy and active around us. And there's all sorts of pressures holding us. But as we abide in him, as we rest in Christ, as we dwell with him, as we let him saturate our being, we become anchored. We become firm because we hear his perspective on who we are and what we're called to. We're not pushed around by the whims and the storms of life, by by the words of the enemy that seek to move us to a place of unbelief or seek to move us to a place of despair. We're held firm in the loving arms of a father. And storms will come. There will be pushes in your back. That's going to happen. Becoming a Christian doesn't protect you from that. In many ways, becoming a Christian makes you more of a visible target to the enemy. He despises you. The enemy despises you. You are made in the image of God. You are loved eternally by the Father. And Satan despises everything about you. 
God has plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And the enemy can't railroad those. He can't push those things aside. But what he can try and do is move you off by degree, away from that. So you step out of God's plan. You step out of his will. The Father wants to hold you steady, to hold you firm. We heard in that beautiful verse in Isaiah, it doesn't say that the, the, the waves won't come, and it doesn't say that the fire won't be there. But it says that when the waves come, you won't be drowned. You won't be overwhelmed by them. And when there's fire, it says this incredible thing. It says that actually God will be with you in the fire, and you won't be burned. It's like that beautiful image of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're thrown into the fire. I love what they say when the king wants to chuck them in and toast them. And, and they, they have this incredible burst of faith. They say, you know, you can throw us in the fire, but we don't believe that, that God will allow us to be burned. And even if he does, we're not going to fall down and worship, you know, a false God. We, we trust God. What a beautiful statement of faith. And, of course, in that moment when they're thrown into the fiery furnace, they're not burned. They're, they're, their bonds become free, and it says there's a fourth person with them in a the fire, uh, like a son of God. I, I believe it's a pre-incarnate Jesus who's with them in the midst of the fire. And they're saved, they're redeemed. It's not just nice words, it's truth. Many of us here have, ha- have known what it is to go through fire. Whether that's in our own personal lives, whether it's sickness, whether it's the loss of loved ones around us. And it's true to say in the midst of the most difficult times of turmoil, you can know God in a way that's remarkable. Because God comes so close. And he holds us steady in those storms. We're not overwhelmed. We know his love, his peace. I believe that tonight... God wants to help us to hear his perspective on who we are. If you're open to God, if you yield to the Holy Spirit, he's going to come to you. He is the potter and we are the clay. He's the one who wants to take your life, no matter what stage of your life, he wants to take your life and your heart and remould it according to his pattern and his image, according to the truth about who you are. Um, I want to um, show you a picture of Michelangelo's sculpture of David, King David. Here he is on the screen. Um, Seems somehow appropriate. Um, has anyone seen David in, in the flesh? A few, quite a few of you. Those of you who have been there will know there's not a St. Matt's logo placed on the original. Um, it's, it's really big, isn't it? 17 feet it's, it's kind of not like a little thing. It's, it's, it's a stunning, stunning sculpture. Um, uh, I guess it's seen by many as perhaps one of the greatest works of art that exists. Um, and what's interesting, a lot of people perhaps don't know, but it was first commissioned back in um, 1466. Uh, and, and, and interestingly, Michelangelo, who was the kind of final sculpture, wasn't the first guy to work on this commission. Marble was obviously very highly prized, and this um, statue came out of an enormous piece of marble, just a block, a squared-off block. And that was incredibly highly prized at the time. It was a very, very expensive thing to happen. But actually, there was this, 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 this marble block had been commissioned to, to, to create this statue, but actually there had been really hardly any process that was made on it after the statue was first commissioned. All the work that had been done was just a few sketched kind of pencil marks on it to show where perhaps the legs and the arms might end up going, the feet. But nothing had been chiseled away. And the project, after 10 years, having been commissioned, basically was resurrected by another artist who kind of took this lump of stone, 
but also never actually did anything, and no progress was made by him. So the contract on the statue of David from, was terminated, and actually this lump of marble was left for 25 years, just abandoned on the side, so much so that it began to weather, and it was a bit worn, and it looked a bit tatty. It didn't kind of look as shiny and new as it had when the kind of marble was first cut into the square. Uh, and it was just left in a courtyard in the cathedral in Florence. It was just abandoned. And then in the year, around about the year 1500, Michelangelo, who was 26 by this age and had become quite a, a, an artist of renown, who was quite a good reputation, he was asked if he would um, take on this contract, go back to this lump of marble, and create David, this character, this amazing character from the Bible. As I say, this lump of marble had been weathered, it had been left out, and it wasn't spectacular. In fact, so much so that when David apparently first looked at it, he wasn't that impressed by the marble he saw. However, it's often said, uh, and I think it's reportedly to, to be true, that when David looked at this marble, despite the fact that actually it was in a bit of a state, he looked with vision that enabled him to see that right in the, in the heart of the marble, where everyone else had looked at this thing and they'd drawn on a few little feet and wondered where it might go and then abandoned it, he was able to see the completed statue of David looking back at him. And in fact, it was then two years later, after working on it for two years, that what he had seen in his heart, he saw in this amazing statue right here, 17 feet high and still a real marvel today. And in many ways, that truth about how David perceived that marble is true about God's revelation of you. You know, the only reason they didn't chuck away this, this marble lump, even though it weathered, is it was just it was too expensive to chuck it away, so they just sort of stuck it on the side, didn't know what to do with it. The Bible says you're too expensive to dispose of. God has a purpose for you and a value for you. He sees something in you so beautiful and glorious. He's not just going to dispose of you, no matter how weathered you may feel. Maybe you look at yourself and you feel like a bit of a lump of marble that's useless. Maybe you feel misshapen. Maybe you feel weather-beaten. Maybe you feel unworthy, unlovable. But the truth is, God's revelation of you is far beyond how you perceive yourself. God's revelation of you is remarkable. His purpose for your life. You're too expensive to dispose of. You're loved and valued. Now, we're not talking about overlooking sin that entangles us or ignoring our own fallenness and the struggles that we have. But the fact of the matter is that God values you even if you don't fully value yourself for who you are. What you may not see in your own personhood or for that matter what maybe other people don't see in you, God sees. God sees remarkable potential. God sees and hopes for better things in you and through you. You know, and I think for us as a church, this is, this is truth. But this is really important that we grasp this for people in the world. Because this is how God sees people. God sees them with eyes of hope and vision. Eyes of destiny of what they can be. And that's really important for, you, for your friends on the courses where you're studying, in your colleagues, in the workplace, for your neighbours, for those really unlikable people that we encounter perhaps daily. God sees them as full of potential and the possibility of transformation. He sees hope and ability to bring transformation. And I think it's really important because I think the days we live in, people are desperate on a desperate search for identity. People want to know who they are and what they're for. 
that BBC programme, Who Do You Think You Are? It's fascinating, isn't it? It has lots of celebrities on it. And they're really well-known people, and they're well-paid, and they're well-loved. And yet often, you see in these people a real fragility that actually when they find out that their great-great-grandfather was royalty or a worked at a stable mucking out pigs, there's some connection for them that actually often ends up with them being in completely in tears. What's going on there? Well, they're beginning to get a glimpse perhaps of who they are in a, in a, in a kind of some sort of strange way. Because there's a longing to know who we are. There's a longing to know who we're connected to. And of course we're connected to the Father because we're made in his image. God's created us in his image. And he wants us to know who we are in him. How do you see yourself? (laughs) Thanks, Victoria. It sounded like we were going to an advert pause for a moment there. (laughs) We'll be right back after this break. It's interesting how we see ourselves. We talk about self-image, don't we? What's your self-image like? Or maybe some of yourself, you know, quite positive, whereas for others, perhaps less helpful. But the truth is, actually, as I've been thinking about this, self-image is a bit of a... It's a bit of a cul-de-sac. It kind of takes off a tangent because actually we shouldn't be worried about self-image. We should be worried about God's image, God's image of who we are. That if we can get a true positive grasp on God's image of who we are, well, then we're seen through his eyes. And it's not about seeing through our own eyes, which often are distorted, like looking in a mirror that's unhelpful. God's image of you. Because self-image can be a real stronghold that inhibits us from serving him or from believing that God wants to use us. It can become like a spiritual stronghold that blinds us from truth and robs you from everything that God intends for your life. Do you see yourself as a new creation in Jesus? Is that the vantage point of your new identity? God sees you in Christ. And when he looks at you, he says, you're my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. It's a remarkable thing. When Jesus is baptized... You know, remember, this, this is before Jesus has done his amazing ministry and miracles and the rest of it. What does God say to him? You are my son, my beloved. In you I'm well pleased. It's from Dartford. Well pleased. God looked at his son and loved him. And, and actually, that is a heart of a father. You know, when I had my... I've got three children now, and they're growing up fast. You know, Ellie there, radiant, 18 at the back. And I'm really pleased with her. She's working really, really hard right now. She's got her A-level mocks next week. She's been working hard. Good girl. But, you know, when she was a baby, and she was in my arms, I remember those days, just, when she was in my arms, I looked down at her when she was literally months old, and I didn't say, do you know what? When you start driving, and actually can drive me around so I can have a glass of milk or something, and when, you know, when actually you're doing the washing up, and when you start showing me that actually you're working hard, I'm going to be really pleased with you. It's nonsense, isn't it? You love a child. And I was so pleased to be with her. I was so pleased with who she was. And when she looked at me and gurgled and smiled with shiny eyes, your heart just bursts out of your chest with love for your child. And so when the father looks at Jesus being baptized, his heart overflows. It bursts out. This is my son. I want the world to know this is my son. I'm pleased with him. It's my beloved. I love him so much. And you are exactly the same. You are his beloved. 
He's over the moon about you. Sons and daughters of the king, loved from heaven. You know, St. Augustine says something like, if you were the only person on earth, God would have loved you lavishly because you're special in his sight. You're loved. You are loved. Not for what you do, but who you are. There's nothing that you can do that will make God love you anymore. Do you believe that? We do believe that because we're very obedient. And the vicar said it, so it must be true. But I really want to ask you in your soul if you believe that. Because if you do, that is life-changing. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you anymore. And that's a bit shocking because that's completely countercultural. It flies in the face of many of our upbringings, education, social kind of stuff. Because actually getting loved and getting acceptance is about what you do, right? In the workplace, getting promoted is about what you do. Uh, being doing well at school is about what you do. Getting acceptance from parents is often about what you do. Getting value is about what you achieve. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong in themselves, but if that's the main way by which we get value, then there's something wrong, because God doesn't say that. When you start doing this, I'll love you. When you become more holy, I'll love you. When you sort out that filthy habit that you don't really seem to be that serious about, then I'll love you. God says, no. While you are still sinners, I sent my son to die for you. Why? Because I love you. Love. Love. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. You are loved. Full stop. Exclamation mark. Underline in bold. Loved. And not just a little bit of love, and there'll be a bit more if you do better. No, love. Love. God is love. All of it. The whole lot comes to you. Love. Nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. So stop trying. And amazingly, there's nothing that you can do that will make him love you any less. It's the same deal, isn't it? Loved. God loves you. And when he looks at you, he says, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Paul in Galatians 2.20, I'll bring it to an end with this, says this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old Paul has died. The old Tim has died. The old Eleanor has died. The old Peter has died. We've really got to stop trying to do CPR on our old self sometimes. He's dead, gone, buried. You are now a new creation, radiant, glorious, beautiful, in need of help and grace and the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless still a new creation that is eternally loved and seen with heavenly eyes, full of potential, full of power, full of authority, full of youthfulness to his kingdom purpose. We need to see the way that Christ sees us, the way that the Father sees us, because it affects how we act, it affects who we are. Colossians 3, if you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the truth. That's who we are. Tonight, God wants to show you how he sees you, who you truly are. That's a journey that we're on. And as we abide and rest in him, that truth about who we are begins to hold us firm. So that when we're like Eleanor standing on the edge, as often we are in life, when the pushes come, there's a rootedness that holds us firm because it's not about how other people see me. 
It's maybe not even about how I see myself anymore. It's about how he sees me. Loved. Full of value. Full of worth. Full of potential. Full of authority. Full of power. It's a glorious knowledge that we need to not have here. We need to have it here. Here and here. It's uh, holding us firm. How do you see yourself? Michelangelo's David in the hands of the master sculptor, even with a piece of damaged stone, became a masterpiece. How do you see yourself? You are a masterpiece in the making. You may well need some corners chipping off you, but the Father has a plan if you're willing to yield to him to turn you into something remarkable. And abiding in him, dwelling in him, resting in him, staying in him, I think is the key beginning and a lifetime need that will take us to a place of growth and usefulness for his kingdom purpose. I want to play something just for us to rest in. Uh, often we pray and we, we, we can have some uh, ministry. Some of you kind of stuff being stirred tonight, you'd love someone to pray with you. Because sometimes we do this together with family. God's spirit comes. But sometimes just resting and abiding in truth That's why his word is key, because this is a word that can, with the spirit, bring real truth that sets us free. We're just going to rest in some truth on the screen, listen to this song, and then we'll close in some worship.